This podcast is sponsored by the Music Player Network at musicplayer.com, the premier musician resource for keyboard players and beyond. Since the year 2000, the Music Player Network has been the go-to source for news and views on music technology, playing tips, and gigging help. The Keyboard Corner is one of the longest-running keyboard forums in Internet history, with guitar, bass, drum, and numerous recording and music tech forums also on offer. Frequented by weekend warriors, manufacturers' representatives, and professionals alike, MPN provides an invaluable resource for any musician, and it's 100% free to sign up and use. Go to www.musicplayer.com to see for yourself. Hello and welcome to episode 11 of the Keyboard Chronicles, a podcast for keyboard players of the gigging variety. I'm your host David Holloway and it's excellent as always to be joining you. I'm joined by the wonderful Paul Bindig again. How are you, Paul? Great, thank you, David. We're having a big weekend of interviews and um, they don't get much better than Mark Barron. So uh, we, we interviewed Mark... Um, who plays with people who can very legitimately be called icons. So Gloria Gaynor, the Duprees, the Beach Boys and Lou Graham, to name just four, and, and he has a lot more than those four. Um, as you'll hear, Mark loves the buzz of performing, and, and that shows him what he does and has the attention to detail t- um, to match it. So, yeah, have, have a listen to Mark. We have a feeling you might enjoy it. Hi, Mark, and thank you for joining us on this very exciting Saturday night for us all. Oh, thanks for having me. So how, how are, are things going for you at the moment? Are you keeping busy? Well, uh, you know, strangely enough, uh, you know, we've been locked down here for three weeks, so all of the, uh, uh, the live gigs have gone away. But um, uh, when I'm not on the road, or actually sometimes when I am on the road, I do an awful lot of uh, uh, writing and arranging. So uh, I actually had a lot of my uh, clients reach out to me and say, hey, can you jump on this project? So, uh, uh, so yeah, I've been here in the studio and writing uh, writing a lot, so I've been pretty busy. <laughs> That's good, yeah. Well, I suppose that is one upside that people with a bit more downtime are, are catching up on other stuff. So, yeah, there's, there's, a, bright, there's a silver lining. Right, exactly. <laughs> So, so, Mark, if we've done our research correctly, you've been um, playing keyboards professionally for around 20 years, but also uh, we're, we're an educator as well and, and a, a teacher too. So can you tell us about that journey and, and what led you to make that jump? And, and are you still doing some teaching as well? Well, yeah, it's um, very early on. That's, you know, went to college for, uh, uh, for both performance and education. And yes. when I got out, ended up... Uh, 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 teaching in the uh, uh, in the public school system in a uh, town called Jersey City here, uh, and I stayed there for about ten years while on the side doing all of the uh, regular performance dates that you know we all do, you know, you know club dates and uh, you know bar gigs and things like that, and uh, and a lot of theater work. And then after about ten years, it just got to where um, you know something had to go. You know, it's uh, you know I was getting busy so much on both ends. 
So I figured yeah. at that point, said, okay, you know, let me let me step out of the teaching thing for a minute and, you know, kind of just do this full time and see where it leads. Uh, and that was 20 years ago. I, I, you know, part of me at the time felt, okay, you know, I'll do this. I'll live off my savings a little bit. I always go back. But uh, yeah, things uh, after about six months of being out of it, doing it full time, just really took off. And thankfully, the wave hasn't stopped yet. <laughs> yeah, that's 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 excellent. Well, was there anything specific, Mark, that um, maybe was there, was there a, you know, you mentioned sort of after six months, things started to really happen for you and, and it worked well and it's still going now. Was there a particular thing you could put your finger on that, that led to things really taking off for you? Well, yeah, it, where, um, where we are here, at least in this part of the world, I'm not sure how it is down by you, uh, we've got a very strong um, circuit that still uh, happens with a lot of the artists who were big in the uh, 1950s and 1960s. Uh, everything from your, your drifters and your coasters to your Gary U.S. Bonds and uh, Temptations and all of that. So uh, probably, I think it was about 1999, uh, I had hooked up with a, uh, with a group, just doing a couple of uh, side dates with a group uh, from the 1960s called the Duprees. Uh, and their big hit at the time was um, uh, uh, You Belong to Me, which everybody knows. It. Mm. See the pyramids along the Nile, that one. Yeah. So so I, I started playing with them, just kind of filling in and the whole thing. And because most of the uh, those artists do these multi-act show formats, uh, then you start to meet all of these other acts. They see you play, and then suddenly you're getting a call from Leslie Gore saying, I need your job here, or Darlene Love. Or, and then suddenly... Uh, uh, you know, it just took off very, very quickly. Wow. Um, so the uh, for the first bunch of years, the vast majority of my um, uh, of the artists I was playing with were all from that 1950s and 60s genre. Uh, and then, you know, as time went on, you know, moved into the 70s artists, the 80s artists, the 90s. Now I'm starting to see artists who, you know, had their hits in the early 2000s and things mm-hmm. like that. So there's always kind of a... Um, uh, I, I want to say a retro circuit uh, type of thing, but once now that you know uh, I've established my name, it's it's amazing some of the calls that I've gotten over the years that you never think you know. Uh, my first question is always like, how, you know, how did you get my name? You know, it's, yeah, uh, but it's just strange, you know. Your, your name just is out there, you know. Fantastic. There you go. And so, I mean, you've just mentioned, obviously, Mark, you play with some iconic singers and songwriters from the 50s and 60s, and they're both milestone eras in, in different ways. And 60s, obviously, um, from a, a rock and uh, viewpoint and soul viewpoint. Do you find the requirements are different to working with those groups, say, to a more contemporary project, as you said, some from the 90s or 2000s um, that you're doing? You find you have to work differently? Well, you know, it's what's interesting about it and um, what I've found, whether it's backing up those artists then or some of the uh, the more recent ones, obviously you're going through different styles, different genres, different uh, uh, palettes of sounds you're going to use. And sometimes you're just a pianist, sometimes you're a B3 player. Or, but putting all of that aside, uh, what it really comes down to, what I've found is the role is more of um, – when when you're in that position where you're backing up an artist, where you're more of an accompanist than anything else. So, um, you know, if uh, we've all had our own groups and our, all ba- uh, our own stuff, we're, the stuff that we write and we're out there and we're performing and it, you're really kind of 
playing for your own stuff, which in my opinion, just takes a different head than when you're sitting in that chair and backing up an artist because that artist is the focal point. So there's different ways that you'll play. There's things that um, you're not going to overplay. You're there to support the artist mm -hmm. as opposed to, hey, check out what I'm doing here. And I think that uh, I've seen, at least in my career, that has kind of been a, um, uh, a, a, a general through line with all of the artists. That, now, a lot of my background, too, when I'm not playing with them, I also come from a musical theater background. So uh, I guess I was very comfortable in that role of being the, um, the accompanist uh, or the, the music that accompanies the performer. Uh, so it was a very natural role for me to to step into. I feel. Yeah. Okay. And and probably just using one example, and and you've got so many um, uh, over the past twenty plus years. But um, you you can't work with Gloria Gaynor. How how did that come about specifically? And and again, um, how how do you tend to to work with her? I mean, I've seen some great videos of of you two. You know, everything from Nam to li live shows, and you obviously work well together. So how, yeah, how did that come about? Oh, it was, uh, yeah, I was actually up in Springfield, Massachusetts, and I got hired for a, uh, uh, for a five-day run with uh, actually what turned out to be the first 70s artist uh, that I played with, which was Thelma Houston. Oh, yeah. Uh, and I, after five days doing two shows a day up there with her, and I had a ball. It was just one of those things where just everything just we had fun. It made sense. And I remember we finished the last job and I'm packing up my car for the drive back to Jersey for me, which is about four hours. Mm. And all that's going through my head, because I still have the adrenaline going, is, all right, how, how do I market myself? I got to get more gigs like this. I got to play more of these <laughs> 70s acts. And after about 15 minutes in the car, my phone rings. I don't recognize the number. I pick it up and... Um, uh, it, it's the manager for Gloria Gaynor said, Hey, you know, we just got your number from Thelma Houston and, uh, you know, we're, we're looking for a keyboard player. Are you interested? So I was like, wow, the power of positive thinking. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, uh, so at the time, uh, they had called me, they, they had another band who they had just, uh, started working with. They only had two jobs. So, um, and it wasn't really working out, which I didn't know. So they brought me on as the, um, they wanted someone to kind of play second keys and play uh, that type of a role. Um, but after I had done two jobs with them, then I got pulled aside and found out that it was a little ulterior motive. They came to me and said, okay, now we like you. We want to, we want you to put together a band and we're going to get rid of these guys and have you take over. And it's, uh, that was 10 years ago. And it just, you know, uh, wow. been with her ever since. She's one of my mainstay artists. I, uh, um, and she's not only just a you know a, a pleasure to work with. I mean, I, I consider her a friend more than anything else. Uh, even during this whole crisis, we're on the phone every other day, just talking about anything. You know, she's a, a wonderful person. So we've uh, we've developed not only a professional relationship but a, a nice personal relationship as well. That's, no, that's, that's absolutely wonderful. Yeah, it's fantastic. Um, look, something else you've done, Mark, that I think many of us who play keyboards would, would love to have had the opportunity to do or to have uh, tried is you've worked a bit on TV shows such as the Today Show and the Colbert Report. I'm curious, is there anything that's unique about doing TV work that perhaps might surprise an uninitiated musician? Good question. You know, it's um, 
the doing the, the most recent one that we had just did, and you saw the the footage for the Today Show. Um, you know, it's uh, what I've found nothing really unique besides, you know, there's a lot of different things you're going to find from a technical end. You have to do a lot of compromises on uh, what you're used to working with, sometimes with a, a monitor wise or whatnot or setup or things like that, just to kind of fit within their template. Sure. Uh, but the easy thing about it, even with a live audience and the whole thing, uh, they want it to go on, right? It's very rare that um, anything is live. You're just hitting and it's going. So, you know, if something happens, you're, you're going to do it as many times as need be to get it right to go out. Um, so I'd say probably the only difference is that you kind of going through just because there's so many moving parts with uh, uh, making sure the focus is right, making sure the uh, you're going to go through the rehearsals with the different camera angles and this is where it's going to be. And uh, so it really I, I always looked at it, at least all of the situations I've done, it's been more about, well, I'm just kind of there as a very small cog in the machine. And it really is about the um, the technical and the visual end and what's going on there, too. So it's it's really just kind of like, OK, you know, you, you, you bring in your art, you buckle up and hold on because you're on their ride now. They're not on yours. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Is, is it very rehearsed, Mark? Um, yeah, when, when you go into those places, uh, just like anything else, you know, you'll go through, uh, there'll be an audio sound check, there'll be the regular lighting check, but then on top of that, uh, there'll be rehearsals for the camera shots, there'll be rehearsals for, uh, for any lighting cues, rehearsals for the count-offs for how they're introducing you into all of the songs, so sure, just an, an awful lot of moving things, and the, the role that I generally do with all of the artists, instead of just the keyboard player, I'm usually... Uh, the musical director or the um, the conductor on the stage. So yeah. in those, I guess it's a little more added um, uh, um, uh, anxiety uh, knowing that, okay, you know, it's everything. You, I'm the guy who's got to time it exactly right for where it's counting off because you see every single TV show, it's it just got to be seamless. As soon mm -hmm. as they say, and coming through the stage, and here's Gary U.S. Bonds. Band, the music's got to start immediately. Yeah. And while yeah. that's all happening, you got it in your ear. They're counting you down. You know exactly. <laughs> it, it runs like clockwork. But you know, if if I have one little hiccup, um, you know, that's they, they stop and say, "Oh, you screwed up. Let's do it again." Yeah, <laughs> so yeah, of course. Of course. Are there any memorable anecdotes or stories you could share from your time working on TV shows? Oh my goodness. Um, well, you know, the, probably the most fun one that I ever did was, uh, um, I'd have to say the Colbert Report with, uh, uh, we did it with Darlene Love, uh, and only because he is such a funny guy, and he's a very light-hearted guy, and that really came across in the whole crew that he worked with. So basically, you know, even though we were there for five hours to do the show, it was like a party the whole time there. I mean, it's everybody's just having a ball. Everybody's laughing, having a good time. So you really got the sense that this is just how they work every single day. Uh, and that was just really nice to be a part of that. Oh, sure. um, yeah, as opposed to, you know, there's been a lot that we've gone into and it's been very uh, uh, all business. In fact, the, uh, we did one, I guess about a year and a half ago, we did the, um, uh, the Harry Connick Jr. show when it was still oh, yeah. running. Yep. And we came in and did it. And I am a huge Harry Connick fan. Um, so I was really, really looking forward to this. But, you know, going on to that set, 
It was run strictly union, strictly business. Uh, you know, you stay in the side room until we call you and come on and here it goes. So it was, um, I, I didn't get to enjoy the moment as much. So I'd gotcha. say, you know, not so much an anecdote, but the Colbert was definitely the most fun that I ever had doing a live shoot. Yeah, it's, it's, as a big fan of uh, Colbert, that's nice to hear. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. yeah. In fact, even even after that, I, I I was a fan going in. I gained a lot of respect uh, after the fact, and uh, even uh, uh, my wife and I went to uh, see a taping of a show two months ago. Just you know, it's uh, you know, it, he he will be one of the people who uh, just my my view of him for the rest of my life is just solidified as this is yeah. one of the most fun, nice guys I've ever met. And of it's course. funny you say that, Mark. We need to get you into John's role um, as the MD on that show. I mean, I went to a taping about two months ago as well. I was lucky enough to be in the US. And, yeah, amazing to watch him in action. He's just such a pro. Unbelievable. In fact, what they do, which I, you know, watching that taping, as you know, too, I mean, all of the stuff that is in between the shots and what they're doing, and it's really, you're just hanging out, and it's all about a concert with them. Yeah. And, man, we had such a great time, and what a bunch of monster musicians. They're fabulous. Yeah, absolutely. And and obviously on that musical direction side of things, you've worked as a conductor, performer and arranger with a lot of orchestras throughout the US. Um, out of all that, are there particular groups that have stood out for you as being particularly fun to work with or other interesting um, experiences in that sort of sphere? Well, probably, you know, from, a, um, from an orchestral point of view, uh, probably the most fun one that I've ever done, uh, and it wasn't in the States, it was actually in, uh, in the Netherlands, and that was with the, uh, the Metropole Orchestra. Uh, and we'd done a four-day run with them for a part of their Christmas series. And we had come in, and they, uh, um, they had sent me all of their, uh, what we're going to do, sent me their instrumentation, and I was able to really uh, uh, write for, for their orchestra, which is great. But going in there, and uh, the quality was so high the musicianship was through the roof and what was great as opposed to so many shows that we do which are just a one-off in and out like i said we got to sit down and really spend four days with them and really do that that was uh that, that was a real special experience yeah and that would be and just i suppose as an aside on the orchestral thing you've obviously got both training and experience in orchestral work but a, a lot of people that play with more popular and uh, artists and, and you now see more uh, rock and pop artists working with orchestras. Can you, have you had experience of how there's that clash of cultures, so to speak, between the orchestral approach and, and the more, you could argue, laid back rock and pop approach? Well, you know, it, it's very interesting and you're absolutely right. There's so many more artists who are starting to, uh, to do that and start to, to fuse together the, um, uh, the orchestra with the rock or, or with the funk or with the pop. And what really, um, a lot of it has to do with, uh, I mean, obviously I think it's a great meld to be able to take some of this uh, wonderful um, rock material and, and really fill it up. But um, I think the reason that it's becoming so uh, popular or so mainstream is because it really is a, um, a wonderful marketing type of idea because any of the orchestras throughout the world all have a very, very strong subscriber base. And these people, they're coming every year, they're seeing everything they're doing. Uh, so they'll 
come in and and they're seeing classical uh, repertoire all the way through. Now suddenly they're saying, okay, we're going to do something like this, say with the Houston Symphony, and we're going to bring in uh, and a pop artist, which we're going to be able to do that. Over here, we've seen some wonderful things. Uh, Styx has done a bunch of them. Mm. Uh, but I think what's happening is not only does it allow um, – the subscribers on that classical side to be introduced to something new and then they start to float on the other but the other way around too a lot of these people who follow these artists now suddenly they're seeing it with the houston symphony so maybe they're a little bit more um inclined they see something happening from that town and say oh you know i'm gonna go see something else that's not the artist yeah, so I, I think it's i think it's a wonderful marketing tool as well as a great artistic venture and that's a fascinating point. So, and I had the pleasure of seeing Ben Folds with the Sydney Symphony just a few weeks back, just before the the lockdown started, and they were making exactly the same point to get more of the uh, those of us that had come to see a, a rock guy to come back for the more classic stuff. But um, you you may have some perspective on this as well. I've always wondered, and I've gone to probably three or four of those sort of shows where a rock band um, is teamed up with an orchestra do the orchestral musicians find that stuff interesting and what i mean by that is compared to some of the complexity of some of the classical pieces and it obviously depends on the arranger and what what they do with it but do you find they is it a bit of a walk in the park for them as far as te technically compared to some of the more classical stuff they do that's an that's an interesting point. The um, I I wouldn't say that I've ever heard from a musician from that thing who would quote unquote thumb their nose up at anything. And while it is probably uh, in a lot of ways sometimes technically easier to say um, uh, when you're doing the the music of the Who as opposed to if you're doing uh, uh, some Mendelssohn. Mm -hmm. uh, but what I think is, uh, like anything else, you know, like I was saying, with what I do, a lot of the 1950s acts, I mean, if, if we're calling it like it is, 99% of that music, you're playing the same four chords, you know, yeah. one, six, um, two, five. But even though that is technically a lot easier than if you're doing, uh, uh, say uh, something, uh, uh, a Jesus Christ superstar or something like that. But you still, you, you're able to find different nuance in it. You're able to find different ways that you're going to really make those four chords as musical as possible. So I think when you're looking at these symphony players, these orchestral players, um, I, I don't think they look at it any different or look at it as any less. In fact, I would argue that they probably it's a wonderful departure of what they're used to and they get more excited about it. Mm. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, that's fascinating. So Mark, you've worked with what seems to me like almost a, a countless list of very well-known and successful musicians. I'm wondering, has there ever been a time where you've almost been somewhat in awe of the performers you've worked with just due to their legacy? Oh, absolutely. Um, when I, uh, uh, growing up, um, when I was young, my father was actually a piano tuner, and um, what when it was so when I was a uh, when I was young, he used to tune for all of uh, the acts, especially were right near Asbury Park. So I was down there as a child uh, and watching Bruce Springsteen, Gary U.S. Bonds. Uh, my father was on tour for years with the Grateful Dead, so so for me when. Um, 
the the artists that I've gotten most excited about uh, have been just that. It's the ones that I grew up and looking at saying, okay, well, because all those guys always seemed larger than life at the time. And then suddenly you get an opportunity, you get a call and say, okay, you know, Gary responds. Uh, called you to play and you know I yeah. remember the first time playing with him I showed up like I, I was like a 13 year old girl <laughs> and, it was, and it was literally like maybe uh, a, a couple of months after I had just uh, done my first job with Aretha Franklin and she was the like mm-hmm. probably the biggest artist at the time I ever did but I tell you I was much more excited to go play with Gary US um, just because so but I think um, at least for me the things that we all grow up with and what we listen to um, those are the ones for me that I've always been the most excited about. Uh, I did I did a run with Mark Farner of Grand Funk Railroad, which was just uh, same thing. I, I was just in awe the whole yeah. time there. So it really, um, I, for I think it just comes back to our our individual history, like what got us excited as kids, and I don't think that ever goes away. No, for sure. Yeah. And, and speaking of people that you may be in awe, awe with, I know that you're a director on the East Coast Hall of Fame. Just for the non-East Coast and non-US listeners, can you talk a little bit about that, uh, what, what that involves? Absolutely. This is actually a very new venture. That, um, uh, and one of, the, um, one of the artists with the group that I mentioned before, the, the Duprees, there was a... Um, uh, the lead singer, his name is Tommy Patillo. He got this idea to start a a Hall of Fame, and the mission statement behind it was there are a lot of artists, especially from that 50s and 60s and 70s era, that have been forgotten by the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. In fact, one artist in particular who... Um, a, a lot of the fans of that genre feel was overlooked was Johnny Maestro, who was the lead singer of, uh, of the Crest and then of the Brooklyn Bridge, uh, who has since passed away. I think it's been about 10 years now. But that was kind of the jumping off point for where this should start. So he, he gets this idea and uh, just... just say, I want to do this, which, uh, you know, like anybody else, it's those things are impossible to materialize. But somehow after nine months, we got a few of us together, got a board together and we, um, uh, we got a whole bunch of inductees for last year. And last June of 2019, we had our first gala and, uh, there were almost 3000 people in attendance for this thing. Um, every artist was there we had this, this wonderful, huge successful event and raised a lot of money uh which none of us expected at the time we were saying off oh, we break even that was a, mm-hmm. a plus comment. so we jumped forward into the next year we had um we were actually scheduled to have our gala the first week of june we just in the last two days pushed it off uh, which is now going to be in October. But the some of the inductees that we have this year, Gloria Gaynor is one of the inductees, Tony Orlando, uh, uh, Dionne Warwick, The Times, uh, Manhattan wow. Transfer. So it, but it really, that that was kind of the point in the whole thing to, uh, to recognize the artists who had not been recognized by the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Um, and when they say East Coast, they're really kind of saying anything from Florida to Maine uh, all the way into the Mississippi, kind of what's been yeah. the t- 
template for where they're pooling from. And I mean, obviously this is a bit off our track as far as keyboard playing, but uh, how challenging has that been for you as a director, you know, knowing the original Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, both the, I'd argue, partly legitimate criticism it gets for how it selects people and that. Have you tried to avoid some of the perhaps uh, mistakes that the, the main Hall of Fame has made over the last sort of 40, 50 years? Yeah, that, that, that's a great question, actually, because uh, because we are still so new and in the infancy of this whole thing. It's constantly almost like the thing that really scares the heck out of us, because, you know, as you're just it, it's like when you just start walking into the minefield, you have no <laughs> idea, but you know, you're going to step on a mine here and there. Um, <laughs> but, uh, so we're constantly trying to put ourselves in check. In fact, uh, on our first year. Uh, one of the people who we had put down as a uh, as one of the honorees, uh, which we didn't even realize at the time, and we found out after about two weeks of us putting stuff out there, was a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductee, which we completely overlooked. So we had to kind of do a little backtracking. But um, but what we've been doing for the um, for who we choose, there's a lot of. Um, uh, there's a lot of open voting that they do from people who can write in. So it's really so far, at least now, it's the people's voice, which is nice. Um, and, and so far, it's been working out very well. We haven't gotten anybody saying, hey, this person's not deserving or, hey, why didn't you look at this person? I'm sure that's going to come. But right now, we've still yeah. been kind of OK. <laughs> No, I, I look. I think you can only it can only um, be, be better than the original, and that's not necessarily a criticism of them either. I'm sure they found their feet, but I mean their origins make them being independent difficult anyway. But um, yeah, no, it's a it's a great approach. So we might pivot across to some gear talk if that's all, all right, Mark. And, and we have a bit of a rule on the podcast: you can talk as much or as little gear as you like. So don't feel pressured to get into you know huge detail unless you love that sort of stuff. Um, <laughs> but so what, what are your essential pieces of keyboard gear that you use in your current projects? Well, it's, uh, with the Gloria Gaynor project, um, my, my main keyboard that I use and I'm sitting next to my studio right now is my Nord stage three. Uh, I'm a, I'm a Nord in Dorsey, so it's, uh, that's kind of where I stay. Yeah. Uh, been uh, love it absolutely you know all of my meat and potatoes it's coming from there that's that's where everything is um on top of that i still use my nord electro 3 i really just love yeah. it for something about the, the the generation 3 with the b3s just really respond for me well um and i also um going out of nord i have my um I'm using the Chord Kronos 2 73 key. Right. Uh, and really where I'm going for anything for my, um, uh, for all of my strings and my yeah. horns and the layers and the ethereal stuff. And that's where that board really shines. I've been a huge fan of the Chord library since all the way back to the train mm. days. It's, uh, you know, and they've just, there's some things, uh, not to speak badly about any other company, but I, there's just some things from Korg that nobody has ever been able to touch. No one's ever been able to come close in my opinion. Um, what, you know, looking around here, what I still have, I still have um, in the, in the Yamaha world, my S90 ES is still sitting here, which I love dearly. The, it's uh, great. 
bored that one. Oh God, the the um, it, it's very interesting. The the piano patches on all of the motif uh, libraries just have something about the non authenticity for me, but works so much better in a live setting than most of the stuff out there. It just it sings yeah. on stage better than better than anything. Absolutely love it. Um, I, I'm a main stage user, so uh, a lot of my uh, uh, plug-in and stuff for when I'm doing live, I'm, I'm bringing out main stage as well, uh, running it from an iMac. Uh, and I, right now, I just, uh, in fact, in the last year, I've actually um, uh, picked up an endorsement with Radial because they came out with the Key Largo uh, yeah. keyboard mixer. And this thing is just unbelievable on, on every end. It's really it, you know, it's basically, it, it's what the keyboard world has been missing forever. If you want to submix your stuff, because, you know, we all find a small mixer to go through, but you're dealing with the um, uh, uh, the noisiness of, of a small board, which it really wasn't designed to do for guys like us, yeah. which is, you know, put everything through. But radial, they, they nailed it right out of the gate. And uh, because it's you, you're, it's a mixer, but it is a radial DI. It's uh, yeah. the smartest I'm, I'm, I'm not a radial endorsed artist, Mark, but I couldn't agree with you more. And I, I probably wouldn't mind diverging off onto that. And so, you know, warning listeners, we're going to get a little bit gear oriented here. But you're right, the Key Ligo is an absolute gem. And uh, obviously, my pot co-host Paul who's just muted at the moment due to a severe rainstorm <laughs> so we're trying oh. not to have that come over over the the broadcast um, uh, uses a key Largo and I use the KL8 which is absolute overkill for what I do uh, but I decided I wanted a rack mount unit and I yeah I could rave about that both those for for hours they are absolutely superb actually I'm just going to come off mute to let you know to Mark and let our listeners know that David uh, um, our esteemed host here sold me the key logo that I use. <laughs> that's 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 how much an advocate he is, and it's it's it is a wonderful piece of gear. It's, I was actually only telling him the other day. It's one of the greatest things I've ever bought. So um, we couldn't agree more with you, Mark. You, you're preaching to the converted here for sure. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And the, ne- the next time you do a tour, Mark, if it's an extensive tour, um, I-, I couldn't recommend the KL8 if you're wanting something uh, rack mountable because it-, it just it takes it up that other level again. It's superb. Oh, I tell you, it's I, I, trust me, I've got my eye on it. It's fantastic. In fact, the way that I got um, I, I got turned on to the uh, Key Largo, which I didn't even know it existed, but I, I watched a, uh, a video just kind of floating across one night of uh, Jordan Rudis uh, yeah. doing it. And that's how I, I, I went to NAM, hooked up with those guys and did that. But right after I uh, got the deal for the Key Largo, then Jordan was doing the uh, the KL8 and just uh, – but, yeah, right now it's uh, – for me with what I'm doing is anywhere that I go, I'm, I'm advancing the gear. It's very rare that I'm actually having to travel with my keyboards, but I'm, I'm carrying my Key Largo with me. <laughs> it fits, fits in my luggage and I'm a happy man. <laughs> On that subject, Mark, what do you when you're when you're touring? What do you take with you, and what do you backline? And I appreciate that will probably change depending on the project, but just from from a general point of view. Well, the vast majority of what I'll do, um, I advance uh, just that. For me, uh, I I stay with my meat and potatoes, my Nord on the bottom, on the top. I'll I'll, I'll take my Korg, uh, the Kronos, and I'll do that. And ninety nine percent of the time. Um, 
any backline company around is going to be able to uh, to supply that stuff. Every mm-hmm. once in a while, it gets a little bit tricky. Like uh, if, if you're going somewhere really remote, uh, a lot of Mexico, uh, we did the Canary Islands, very straight, you know, some of these remote places. And then at that point, you just kind of have to, uh, they'll send you a list of, here's the substitutions of what we have. And generally, um, with as long as probably we've all been doing this, uh, if they say, hey, you know, I can't give you a, uh, a stage three, but we've got a motif here. Mm-hmm. You know the libraries enough that you can get there and say, all right, I'm going to have to do uh, uh, some programming, going to have to do whatever. and uh, But, you know, you're able to kind of get through it. I don't think I've ever had a time um, where I, they didn't have something that I couldn't get through. Uh, and generally for myself, I advanced three keyboards on the stage. And that's while I do use all three, uh, it's almost kind of a backup for myself. I know I can get sure. to any job on the mm-hmm. two. And there has been times where yellow board will go down in the middle of uh, in the middle of a show. You know, and you, you got to have the other two to get through it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It can absolutely happen. And just on, you mentioned main stage too, Mark. Um, so you're using that live and you mentioned an iMac so you, you're not using a Mac but you're using an iMac so you you obviously the big screen is is excellent you're you're taking an iMac out well it's what I'm doing uh I, I do that here for the iMac when I'm out um sorry I, I, yeah I, was, I should be clear here I, I'm looking at my iMac that's what I said but I go out with a um uh, uh, with a MacBook Pro is yeah, what I gotcha. use. For, for yeah. yeah. And, uh, and that is, uh, I mean, you know, main stage is very stable, works very well. I use the, um, uh, I use the mode to, um, uh, the, uh, the ultra light, I think it is yeah. the, uh, the eight in and out, and, uh, uh, which, and it's been fine. I don't think I've ever had a problem where it has been, um, uh, where it has gone down on me. That being said, I'm probably using it at a lesser extent than some of the other people who uh, I've seen out there doing it. Uh, a buddy of mine who, um, uh, uh, Andy Burton, who you probably know, he's with Disciples uh, yeah. of Soul now. We, we literally you know, just interviewed him. So we, we've just, uh, he, he's the episode before you. There you go. Yeah, perfect. You know, but, you know, Andy, you talk to him about his gear and what he does. He's running a very, very detailed amount of soft synth stuff on stage. So he's got um, uh, hard drive backups for his hard drive backups and whatnot. And that has to be there. You know, see me with what I'm running where I just want some layers with the existing libraries and the boards that's here. Uh, it, it's very stable on my end. In fact, it, it's really funny. It, it's maybe about... Uh, six or seven months ago, I wanted to look into something. I called up Andy and I said, hey, when you're back in town uh, off of your tour, you know, I want to get together with you and uh, you know, kind of pick your brain a little bit. And we just haven't gotten together yet, but we definitely will. <laughs> and I, I'm a, this is an assumption, just having done that interview, do you, did you and Andy meet via like Darlene Love, that sort of connection? You know, it was actually pre- uh, Darlene Love. We were um, there was an act here, um, uh, Kenny Vance and the Planetones, okay. um, and he was playing with for a short amount of time right before he had left to go out with. Uh, I think it was Rufus. Uh, I think it was Rufus who he left with, yeah. and at the time he needed somebody to fill the spot with Kenny Vance and the Planetones. So he got my name through somebody, called me up, and uh, uh, then I I went over there and filled in until they found the replacement. Uh, but, you know, over the years, um, uh, 
uh, we've kept in touch. There's been a few things he called me for, vice versa. And um, yeah, it's just, uh, we've just kind of been in the same circles. Small world. Yeah. He's a great guy. Unbelievable player, as you know, and just, uh, you know, really smart cat too. Yeah, absolutely. And so back to the actual playing, Mark, um, what, what are some of the biggest lessons you think you've learned over the years in rela- relation to gigging? So just that live playing lessons you've learned. For me, you know, it's uh, growing up uh, very early on. Like, you know, I, I was a, you know, born in the 60s, child of the 70s. So, you know, all of the people who you're watching play and who you want to emulate be, you're, you're watching your your Keith Emersons and your John Lords and whatnot. And of course, all of their, uh, you know, all of that wonderful technical prowess that they did. And uh, But I guess as I got older and start to really apply your craft in what it is, um, I guess I learned as a musician that... Um, Less is more sometimes, mm. you know, when you're, when you're playing, um, your groove becomes a lot more important than how many notes you're going to play. Um, so as I get older, you know, you're the people who you start to look to as your inspiration, at least for me, have been more about groove than about notes. Now, that being said, you know, still, if, you know, I'm sitting here at night and I just want to have some fun and floating around on YouTube, the first people I'm going to pull up are uh, Jordan Rudis or Corey Henry or something <laughs> to just watch them, you know, play their faces off. Um, and I still enjoy the heck out of it. But me as a player, uh, yeah, it's really about I, what I'm constantly thinking about is about the groove and how is my part fitting in with the guys around me? Am I, uh, you know, am, am I part of the Am I part of the puzzle or am I just trying to control the puzzle, if that makes any sense? Yeah, yeah. No, it's a great, great point. You mentioned that sometimes things can happen when you're playing live. Like, you know, although your, your setup's quite stable, sometimes you can have a, a keyboard go down and it's good to have a spare and a backup and that sort of thing. I'm curious, are there any particularly challenging moments you may have had crop up of that nature or different nature while you've been performing live that other keyboard players might relate to? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's constant. You know, we we have a, you know, especially with the Gloria Camp, we, we have a joke that the um, uh, that that the perfect show is that elusive thing that nobody's ever going to be able to capture mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. there's always something that is technically going to go wrong on, on the stage, whether it be, you know, the bad RF on, on the mics and the whole thing, but specifically to the uh, to the keyboard part. Um yeah, it, I'll tell you, there's been a ton of times where, you know, you're playing, your monitor goes out, a cable goes out. Um, you know, probably the worst thing that ever happened to me, and it was, we went, we were doing a job down in Miami uh, for a private party. We do the sound check during the day, and we go back to the hotel rooms, and we come back, and they introduce us, and I go out on stage, and I look at the keyboards, in the center of the bottom keyboard there's like seven broken keys and the top oh. one, the whole top, the keys. I, I go and tell huh. them, like, what the hell happens? Oh, you know, late, uh, before you guys left, we closed the curtain and the keyboards fell over. So we picked them up. I said, that was six <laughs> hours ago. So, so here we are. I, I now have to go through this show. I, you, half of the keys are just broken, missing. I'm pulling all over the place. It, it's just, it's the worst of, of all 
possible scenarios. You just think, oh my God, just get me through this. We get to the last song and I look down in the audience and who's in the first row jumping around and there's uh, Gloria Estefan and her husband. I'm just like, oh, freaking great. Of all the shows. But, oh, but yeah, but you know, but what it, what it really comes down to is no matter what happens and, and the lesson what it is, um, no matter what hand you're dealt, you got to play that hand. No matter what, mm. there was no my saying, "Hey, you know what? We can't do this. The keyboards are broken. Uh-huh. I got to figure out how to get through it." Yeah, you know. Yeah. So that's yeah. that's kind of the 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 best lesson, you know. When you look at, and you know what we do, there's no such thing as a sick day. There's no such thing as being uh-huh. late for work. It's uh, all of those pressures and all of that stuff is is, is a very real thing for us. Uh, and then when you put, you know, the the gear problems on top of it, it yeah it can be daunting <laughs> absolutely yeah yeah absolutely oh great yeah well, um so mark can you tell us um what you are working on say in, in the coming year 18 months obviously uh, times are a little bit challenging at the moment but yeah i'd love to know what what projects you're working on and what's next for mark Barron. Uh, interesting. Well, now that um, once we all start to be able to come out of our little quarantine here and start uh, to go forward, um, you know, we're going to start to rebook uh, first all of the Gloria tours, some of the things that we had to put on hold right now. We had a, a week in the Ukraine coming up. Mm. Uh, we had a Poland run, um, a couple of things there that we got to get back on the books. Uh, we have the East Coast Music Hall of Fame, the 2020 Gala, which is happening now in October. Um, in the months of November and December, I have a theater project that I'm working on and doing all of the arrangements for that that opens for a two-month run. Um, and then in between that, just a lot of different uh, 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 concerts with a ton of different artists and pretty much uh, all over the world. It's um just you know, kind of back to business as usual, I guess. With what I'm looking forward to, looking forward to the most. And it'll be interesting whether it is business as usual. And I mean this in a positive way. I, the amount of people I've talked to over the the past week or two saying not only will it be business as usual, but everyone will be so excited to be out and about again that I think the power of some of these gigs will be much greater than otherwise they normally would have been. It'd be interesting to I- see. I agree with you 100% because, I mean, as we've always seen throughout, you know, recent history and even you know, farther back, I mean, it's no matter the hardest times when people go through, what do they always fall back on? They fall back on music. Mm-hmm. And I think when people are going to come out, uh, I think that the um, the the live uh, experience is going to take off even more so. Here in the States, strangely enough, is probably one of the places where I'd say you know, live music is not as prevalent as it is in other parts of the world. I mean, it's, you don't see the size of the crowds when you go to, uh, in the States and when you go to Spain, to Argentina, to, you know, it's, it's not the same here, but I think, uh, it's got a big chance of that changing here. I think people are going to need something to, um, to bring them back together. And I'm hoping that this, uh, this thing that we do is uh, is really going to, you know, change for the better. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And the last question of the night, Mark, which is the Desert Island Disc question. So, uh, again, I did give you advance warning. So have you got five <laughs> albums that you absolutely couldn't live without on a desert island? 
Oh my goodness! You know, it's funny. You did give me advance warning, but I didn't think too much about it. So I mean, okay. kind of off the top of my head a little bit here, and just kind of the things that you know. When for me, when I'm just going to sit down and uh, really listen to something and enjoy it, I tend to always go back to my classic rock roots and what it is. So um, for me, just off the top of my head, I would go to Emerson, Lake and Palmer pictures at an exhibition. Yeah. I'd go there. Uh, I'd go to the same group. I'd go to Tarkus. Um, yeah. Probably go to Led Zeppelin's physical graffiti. Uh, I, I'd go to, oh my God, I'd, I'd go I'd go to Sticks. I'd go uh, yeah. um Mandalusion. Um, my goodness. Yeah, it's for me, it is always going to go back to those to those classic rocks. That's it, when I'm sitting down in enjoyment. That's for me. That's what it, it just always becomes, because uh, there's something about it for me. That's uh, it's not about work anymore, not about analyzing it or not about, uh, you know, trying to dissect it or what it is. It's just, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a I'm a 15 year old kid again, just enjoying it, you know. And I think I think that comes across in your performances, Mark. And I mean, can't thank you enough for taking part in this because one thing that stood out for me, I said, in doing our research, is you are obviously enjoying yourself, and it shows both in the quality of what you do and um, your enjoyment of it more broadly. So, yes, yeah, thank you very much. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I had a ball. So there we have it. Um, Paul, I, I don't know about you, but I love talking to people who love what they do. And that's something we tend to have happen here a lot on the podcast. And, and there's no better example than Mark. Yeah, Mark clearly has a lot of passion. And, you know, as us Australians say, David seems to be a very good bloke. <laughs> that's good. Yeah, that's good. No, you're right. Um, he, yeah, he's just you know, quality from end to end. And uh, it was funny that he did know, know of our previous guest, Andy. I, I thought New York and New Jersey was a big area. Yeah, I'll discuss to show you the keyboard communities are a lot closer than we think it is. That's right. And, and that's one of the reasons we got into this, because we've certainly been supported by the community uh, and it's greatly appreciated. So... Yeah, we'll be back again in a fortnight or so. Um, and as always, there are a few ways you can keep in touch. Um, our website is www.keyboardchronicles.com. We're on Facebook um, at The Keyboard Chronicles and on Twitter at The Keyboard CHR1. Um, if you like good old-fashioned email, then as always, love to get your feedback at editor at keyboardchronicles.com. Thank you again, Paul. Always uh, great to be with you. Oh, thanks, David. Again, great to be invited to be co-host, and I look forward to speaking to you again soon. Uh, maybe when you want to sell me some more radial keyboard gear. <laughs> yeah, look, and radial. If you're out there and you want to sponsor the podcast, go for it. But yeah, our love is um, our love is legitimate. Oh, I love you, dear. <laughs> but um, most importantly, thanks to uh, everyone out there again for listening. I said it last episode, but we do love getting the feedback that we get, uh, and hope to see you back here next episode. <laughs>